as I, as I can probably imagine, the majority of people in Venezuela couldn't care less if it was a crypto bull market or not right now. A lot of people don't have access to, to the crypto markets. They're just trying to survive and figure out where their next meal is coming from and how to stop the hyperinflation of their, of their currency from affecting the ability for them to put food on the table. Hello and welcome to the Crypto Standard Podcast with me, Jordan. And me, Jim. Where we take the cryptic out of crypto. We are not financial advisors, but we just love the world of crypto and want to make it simple for you to understand. Today's show is sponsored by Zumo, the crypto wallet making it easier than ever to buy, own and sell crypto. Zumo, smart money for everyone. What an episode we've got for you today. We have the fantastic Michael, otherwise known as RSR Ernie on Twitter, and he's on to chat about all things reserve. Now, I know what you're thinking. The episode is one hour and 25 minutes long. But trust me, this is full of absolute gold. And Michael takes us through reserve and the RSR token in a very simplified way. We hope you enjoy this one. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Crypto Standard Podcast with me, Jim. Me, Jordan. How are you today, Jordan? I'm very well excited about this one. I think you were doing a bit of gardening this morning, were you? <laughs> I was doing a bit of gardening this morning. In the sun, though, which is positive. <laughs> and, the, and for all the listeners, Jordan washed my car today. <laughs> I know that's, I, I must owe you something big now. So today we're joined by a really special guest. This whole podcast is about reserve protocol today. And it's two kind of coins, RSR and RSV. And there's no one better positioned to talk about it, help us understand it, educate us, and just put us right uh, on where we are and give perspective on it than RSR Ernie on Twitter, or as we like to call them, Michael. How are you, Michael? I am very, very good. Uh, thanks for having me on this podcast. It is a pleasure to be here, and I'm very excited to talk about Reserve. Well, that's great, but the, one of the first things I want to talk about is how you've inspired us, because as we chatted about earlier, I, I walked my dog in Spain in the searing heat um, during lockdown I, 12 months ago, and I remember looking for something on Reserve Protocol to listen to in the podcast, and out of the blue, up pops RSR Ernie, and I recall thinking, my goodness, someone's actually doing a podcast. And I remember you just going on there. You didn't have a sponsor, but you just you just did it. And I, I total respect for doing that. I appreciate that. The uh, the first couple podcasts were very rough. Um, thanks to uh, Fuzzy Snoot uh, for being the first guest on there. But the first couple ones that I do, I kind of describe what the protocol actually is, how it works, uh, who's invested in it. Um, and I was basically just reading off of an Excel or I guess a, a Word, Microsoft Word document. Um, and uh, it was very rough, but I figured I might as well try to start it if I'm going to be invested in this. Um, and the thing about crypto is that it's kind of really fun because you can get in on the ground floor, whereas for a lot of the stock market and, and tech companies, uh, you've got to be an accredited investor, an angel investor in order to get that type of exposure. I figured I'm here at the ground floor. Um, I'm invested in it. If it goes up, my net worth will go up. So I might as well do whatever it takes to try to get 
get some exposure and to have people understand how it works and, and to get the word out. So I, I thank you for that. And I really appreciate that. And I think what you guys are doing with this podcast is absolutely fantastic too, because in a way you're doing kind of the exact same thing, talking about a whole bunch of different projects. And uh, now you're starting to get more into reserve, which is awesome. Yeah. And at that time also, I remember hooking in with uh, Sweet Sinner on Twitter uh, that's that Neve from Ireland, and we've had Neve on this podcast. Neve was our first guest on the podcast, and sure she was. talked about RSR and guided us through it as well. That's awesome. She was on uh, my podcast as well, and she's absolutely fantastic. Uh, probably one of the biggest people on Twitter um, for uh, an advocate for Reserve, and uh, she's absolutely fantastic. Great. Okay, let's let's kick off. Jordan, on you go. First things first. I'd like to get to know you a little bit and how how did you come about cryptocurrency and what got you invested in it so i am living in vancouver canada uh, i actually just recently turned 31 and so uh i kind of got introduced to cryptocurrency in the first wave around 2017 ish so i wasn't at the very beginning i think it was around 2012 was when bitcoin was created i wasn't there from the very beginning when they were kind of you click onto a website and you get free Bitcoins for showing up to it, um, unfortunately, or, or else I'd be a lot more wealthy than I currently am. Um, <laughs> but I was introduced to it in 2017. I think just reading, uh, I, I have a financial background. Um, I went to the University of British Columbia, have my Bachelor of Commerce. I'm an accountant by trade. Um, so I've got a bit of a financial background and everything financial wise interests me. So I'd read a whole bunch of articles on all of your standard stuff from Bloomberg to Wall Street Journal to just on Twitter, reading through a whole bunch of, uh, of different people's perspectives. And I came across this thing called Bitcoin. And so I decided to do more research into it in which uh, then I kind of read uh, the, the infamous Satoshi forums with, with guys like Craig Wright and all that. Um, and then I also read the white paper and it was a very cool concept. So I decided to buy a little bit. And so that's how I got my start into it. Uh, back then, Ethereum was also not trading very, I think it was, I think Ethereum was like probably $15, $16 at the time. Uh, but Bitcoin was the thing I knew most about. Uh, and then I just bought a little bit of Ethereum on the side and started to learn more into that. Um, in 2017, obviously the potential of Ethereum wasn't really as known as it is now, and it wasn't as executed as it is now, or and, and it even is still in the early stages right now. Um, but that's how I kind of got my my entrance into, into crypto. And then from there, what I decided to do, like I did with most things, actually, and this started because I was in a fantasy football league, um, fantasy American football, uh, not, not the football that you guys know in, in Europe. Um, I decided to try to get in order to get an advantage uh, over everybody else in the league. I created a Twitter account in which all I did was follow fantasy football experts, um, football analysts, a whole bunch of different guys so that my whole feed every single day uh, in real time would, would tell me kind of who to pick up, who to drop, um, which players were going to be performing. And uh, back then, Twitter was still, I guess, not really a new concept, but it was new in terms of people in the media because these were things that they could shoot off one or two sentences in which, hey, I think this player is going to do well, that wasn't necessarily worth an article that they'd have to write for ESPN, which would be 500 to 1,000 words, that they couldn't necessarily do that, but they could give off a whole bunch of little thoughts. So I was getting this information in real time. Um, and then when I started uh, following crypto, I was like, hey, wait a second, there's got to be the same thing on Twitter for this. Um, and so I started my own uh, crypto Twitter. Uh, it wasn't RSR Ernie at the time. It was actually just my personal Twitter in which I would follow about 500 people. Um, and then all I would do was just read these tweets. 
Um, and as you can imagine, probably back then, uh, it was just the wild, wild west. Uh, there was a whole bunch of people that weren't really accredited that would have like 10,000 followers. And, um, and that was considered big at the time. And, uh, and these people would tweet about basically anything because they were essentially just people who got into this early, but they might not have, have had the background or really cared about what they tweeted about. So it was really unfiltered and it was hard to get good content. Obviously that's cleaned up quite a bit now. Um, but that was kind of my intro into crypto um, and, and finding the space and learning more about it. And there's, there's a few things I'd love to unpack there, but I, I recall also getting into crypto Twitter and, and learning about things like RSR and the, there was the fuzzy, fuzzy snoot. And I think he's, is he, is he not touring America now in an, in an RV? Yes. Um, so he had a goal uh, to basically fix up an RV and just go around the United States while living off uh, other forms of passive income. And he's now living that dream right now. So wow. good for him. Yeah, I love that. And I, I, I love uh, seeing his photographs when he arrives in different places. And another one that, that popped up at the time in RSR was the RSR whale, but it seems to have disappeared. Yes, actually. Um, it's interesting. Uh, I actually just received a, uh, a DM from somebody uh, I haven't verified this yet, but somebody who claims to be the former RSR whale saying that his Twitter account actually got banned. Um, and, but he told me to say hi to the RSR community and he'll fill me in more details later on and, and go from there. So I'm still waiting to hear the backstory, but yes, that was actually one of the, the first people and kind of the biggest RSR uh, following uh, in terms of people on, on Twitter that I first came across when I, when I got introduced into the space. Yeah. And the, the, the kind of last thing I wanted to unpack there was, so when you got into Bitcoin, Bitcoin was the one I think we all get into at the beginning in Ethereum and two things. So on the last podcast, I was quite rough in the Bitcoin community because I find the maxis quite um, intense, but fair play to them. They went to Miami just outside, you know, out, outside the, the pandemic. They, it was all organized. They got themselves together. They went rah, rah, rah. They had lots of meets and chats and they energized themselves. So well done to them for doing that. And I hope that one day the Cardano community and the uh, RSR community can do the same. Um, but the, the, what I wanted to ask you was when you bought your Ethereum at $16, how did you go about buying that? What platforms or exchanges were you using? I actually used uh, Coinbase at the time. Ah. Um, so actually, no, sorry. I used Kraken. I used Coinbase ah. to track on my phone, what the price was because it, we were still so early and I couldn't figure out a way to find the price on an app on my phone other than downloading the Coinbase app. But I think at the time, because I am in Canada, Coinbase didn't sell. Actually they did, but it was by credit card. And what I decided to do was I wired money into Kraken. Um, so oh. I actually bought through Kraken. Uh, and then later on, I used some local exchanges as well, because I figured at that time, very naive. I was also a little younger than I currently am, uh, was I figured if something was to go wrong with the exchange, if I found a local exchange, what I could at least do was just camp outside of their head office and knock on the door ah. if something happened. Um, so I ended up going with, uh, ironically enough, I ended up going with a local exchange in Vancouver. Uh, I think they're called Quadriga. Um, and I'm not too sure if you're familiar with the background of their story, but essentially they had millions and millions of dollars in their exchange. And what supposedly happened, although there's still a criminal case going on, is that the uh, the founder essentially went to Mexico and and died, um, and and kind of nobody recovered the private keys. 
Um, he kept all the private keys to himself. And so there's a whole bunch of Bitcoin supposedly stuck somewhere and the, the company just folded. And so now, now the wife is in, in interrogation and all of this uh, is coming out. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But it's a crazy, crazy story for those of you guys listening who don't know about Quadriga. I would suggest yeah. looking up that exchange and what happened. I remember reading about that. It was quite really interesting. So we've got tons of questions. Tell us about tell us about Canada right now. Tell us about Vancouver. Apart from the property prices, which are here, are going through the roof. Um, how how is crypto and blockchain developing there in terms of um, people knowing about it, chatting about it? Yeah. So. Um... I mean, it's pretty big here. Uh, I obviously don't have the same perspective as I do in other places of the world. But even in 2017, there was a lot of chatter. Um, and it was really interesting, actually, um, when I did initially own and I actually ended up selling right before the peak. Um, I, I don't want to say that I'm smart or anything in 2018, or I think it was late 2017. Um, I just accidentally got lucky um, when I heard my dentist ask me what Bitcoin was and that he intended to buy it for the sake of selling it at a higher price. And it didn't really matter that he didn't know what any of it meant or what it actually did. Um, that's when I was like, all right, I think this is a bit of a bubble here. And I think we're completely different now because a lot of people understand what Bitcoin actually does. Um, and so uh, back back then in 2017, uh, it was actually really interesting because there was a lot of, uh, there's actually a lot of tech activity in Vancouver, surprisingly, and uh, the exchange, as I mentioned, but also I was out on a patio at this place called Tap and Barrel, um, which is uh, downtown. And um, I was just sitting outside uh, in the patio having a beer and I overheard a table next to me talk about crypto. And so I decided to, to ask and inquire and they were mentioning about how they were thinking about starting a crypto company. So crypto has always been um, pretty big in Vancouver. Uh, it continues to grow. Um, obviously, almost everybody who knows that you're in crypto has already asked you questions in the past six to nine months about, hey, what should I invest in or what's best? I don't like to really give too much advice. Um, obviously, I don't like to give advice and then have people lose money based on that. So what I do is I just tell people to educate themselves, start with Bitcoin, Ethereum, and then slowly work your way through. But there's a lot going on in Vancouver with regards to uh, crypto. And it's, uh, it's really evident in terms of seeing the amount of Bitcoin ATMs. I kind of gauge it by that. But uh, you could go, to, I'd say almost... Um, I'd say there are almost about a thousand Bitcoin ATMs just in the lower mainland itself. Um, in, a, wow. in a population of about 2 million people, uh, there's about a thousand Bitcoin ATMs. There's actually one on a random corner store. I actually just moved and there's one on a random corner store I found about half a block away, uh, which is really cool. Uh, so so I, I think it's actually growing quite a bit and just like it is worldwide. Uh, and I think the, uh, the adoption process is, uh, is slowly but surely coming along. Oh, wow. We don't, have, we don't have a Bitcoin ATM in Dundee yet, do we, John? We don't. I've actually never seen one. Um, I've seen pictures, obviously, um, but it's not really it's not really a thing here, a bit no. Bitcoin ATM. Um, so to hear that there's thousands of them in Canada, is, it's, I didn't expect to hear that. <laughs> yeah, it's really cool. And it's like all you do is basically input your phone number um, so that they have some way to trace you. Um, in case something happens and then all you do is just scan your qr code and then just uh, choose an amount to withdraw and then it just pumps out the cash for you right there right then and wow, there wow that's amazing so there's a guy i listen to he's really he's a clever guy canadian um i love his thesis um greg foss no i've never i've never heard of him 
He's he he worked for the the Royal Bank of Canada. He's he's like yourself. He's financially literate, and his his stuff is really good. He understands the bond market, and he basically was saying, "Look, Canada's like most countries; it's just got no money, and we should." He thinks he should adopt a Bitcoin standard and get to cryptocurrency. And he was talking to a lot of uh, top people in the government. But you've also got a politician there. I can't remember his name, and he's very articulate when he talks about cryptocurrency and macroeconomics and how that Canada should look at a, a, even buying some Bitcoin five or ten percent and putting it in their reserves. So it feels to me that when I when I hear about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, there's definitely something going on in Canada. It's not the it's not the little brother to the USA. No, no, definitely not. Uh, there's a lot of chatter. Um, there's a lot of companies that have uh, started to look into it, um, and it's definitely a, a country that hasn't necessarily been too against crypto to uh, from the beginning. Obviously, um, we heard Donald Trump come out last week and talk about how Bitcoin is a scam and it's a huge competitor to the US dollar. Um, there isn't really that mentality here in Canada, um, which I think is sort of a, uh, it, it kind of goes to what people think around the world when you think about Canadians versus Americans, there isn't as much of that arrogance and that we need to protect what we have. And we got to watch out for these competitors uh, from this Canadian standpoint. It's, hey, this is a great new technology. Um, let's learn more about it. And let's see how we can kind of incorporate it into what we're doing. Okay. Right. So let's, let's get down to why we're all here, RSR and Reserve. You said you bought Bitcoin and Ethereum back in 2017. And then what made you get into RSR? Like, how did that come about? So I didn't actually touch any altcoins. I guess that back at the time, uh, Ethereum was considered an altcoin. I didn't touch any other coins other than Bitcoin and Ethereum back in 2017, 2018. Um, and then uh, accumulated, I sold and then sort of started accumulating slowly, um, just kind of Bitcoin and Ethereum. Uh, but then kind of as the, uh, I guess as COVID started, uh, there was a huge market crash all around the world, lots, lots of panic, lots of governments issuing money. And then that's when the Bitcoin thesis started to come into reality. And a lot of people were going, hey, inflation might actually be a real thing in the coming years, coming decades. Um, is the, I wish there was something that would counter inflation. And voila, it's been Bitcoin sitting here all along. And so I started to kind of dive more deeper into the community again. I was kind of very passive uh, with the community from... Uh, I guess when I sold in 2018, all the way to 2020. And then I started to fire up the old Twitter machine again and started to get into it. And then I looked and it had seemed that a lot of projects had started to uh, have some real life use cases to them. Uh, whereas back in 2017, there wasn't really much because it was just the introduction of blockchain. Uh, but there was a lot more going on out there in terms of other projects that weren't just Bitcoin and Ethereum. And that's when I started to dive deeper into some of them. And, um, and I started to find more people to try to follow on Twitter. That's how I actually came across a guy named uh, Crypto God John. Um, yep. And that's when he initially, it's actually kind of funny. Um, so I'm in the Discord right now, but I've been grandfathered in since the very beginning. And when he actually started it, it was originally a Telegram group. And there was probably 25 people in it. And I was one of the 25 people and he would be giving all of this information, basically the exact same way he does now. Um, and uh, it, it's kind of interesting because for a lot of people out there who are like now, hey, he's grown his following to a big enough, uh, I guess, big enough group to where whatever he says, it doesn't even matter because it's kind of like the Warren Buffett effect and that people will just buy. But back then he had 25 people in his group and it was still the exact same. He was still making these calls and they were they were fairly accurate. 
And he started talking about this thing called reserve rights. He goes, I'm looking into this reserve rights token. And, and I kind of blew it off for the longest time. I wish I didn't. Um, he talked, he started talking about it when it was like, I don't even know what it was like one, one hundredth of a penny or like one, one thousandth of a penny or something like that. And I was like, reserve rights token. This sounds very lame. I don't really know what this is, but I'm not about trying to like reserve my rights or whatever the heck that means. I had absolutely no idea had anything to do with currency, um, or, or like a, a storage of value. Um, and so it took me a while, but I started to get more into it and warm up to it. Cause all he did was talk about this thing and how fast it had grown in, in terms of price. So I was like, all right, let me read the white paper and what this is about. And, um, as I tweeted out last week, um, I'm not convinced that anybody has ever read the reserve white paper and not bought RSR after that. So that's how I kind of got into this. Okay. And you're into it. And so let, let's let's take it back to the actual project. So the let's look at the reserve protocol project, its leadership and its backers. And I know you've covered lots of this before because I listened to your podcast, but we just want to make sure that we fully understand it and what it means. So 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 the use case is all about hyperinflation. Is that right? Uh, yes, actually. Uh, I guess the original thesis of the coin itself is to try to become a decentralized stable coin that would be potentially used as one, a storage of value in which then you get the hyperinflation argument into it. And also a second one in terms of a means uh, to obtain goods and services, uh, a transactional piece for goods and services. Um, and, and it doesn't really go into it too much in uh, in the white paper itself. But if you actually read the Bitcoin standard, it talks about the, the usage case for Bitcoin. And I think obviously Bitcoin is more volatile um, as we've seen throughout the years and isn't really necessarily a, a, a good uh, alternative for everyday transactions because of that issue. And so we're looking for a stable coin, but we're looking for a decentralized stable coin that kind of fits the thesis of what blockchain technology is. And right now there's a lot of world inefficiencies because every country is, uh, I guess, for the most part on their own currency. And so if, say, for example, if I've got the Canadian dollar and I'm looking to uh, buy something in the US, I've got to buy in a US dollar in which then I'm giving up some type of foreign transaction fee. Uh, there's a foreign exchange to it. Um, so, so these are just inefficiencies um, that really have no purpose other than to pay a middleman in order to complete that transaction. There's no you. There's no benefit to the to the person buying. There's no benefit to the seller, um, and these are things that can all be get uh, all be gotten rid of if we had some type of cryptocurrency stablecoin that was able to kind of bridge that gap. And so that is kind of what the the thesis of reserve is. Uh, and Nevin has talked in the past about how, and, and this is how it kind of correlates to to their investor side. Uh, talked in the past about how this is kind of the original thesis of PayPal and what they had tried to do. But if you read a book called The PayPal Wars, written by Eric Jackson, who is, the, I believe, the VP of marketing at PayPal, he talks about sort of all of the obstacles and roadblocks that they encountered along the way towards trying to create something like this and ultimately settled towards the, the product that you see now and know as, as PayPal. So Eric Jackson happens to be one of the early investors in, uh, in reserve, as well as Peter Thiel, who was, uh, who was one of the co-founders of, of PayPal and one of the big two guys. Um, obviously, everybody knows Peter Thiel and Elon Musk when they think about PayPal. Um, but I would highly suggest reading that book to learn more about their journey and sort of some of the obstacles they, uh, they encountered along the way. Uh, but those are two of the bigger investors, along with Sam Altman, who is the founder of Y Combinator, I believe. Um, so three absolutely gigantic names and two 
names that are just huge in the financial space and are still huge in the financial space uh, backing this project and as early investors and, and consultants. So um, that in and of itself uh, is a lot of reason for people to, uh, to be attracted to this project. But I don't necessarily like to really rely on those uh, those people. Um, one, we don't know how much they've invested. Uh, I don't think they've really said that out loud, and I'm sure the amount they've invested uh, is not a very significant portion of their net worth. Um, yeah. and, and they're probably invested in lots of other projects like this. So I don't really like to rely on that. But it obviously doesn't hurt to have guys like that backing this project. Yeah, so I think that's really relevant because it's it's the follow up that I was going to ask you. So. For the listeners, when you're on Twitter or you're on a Discord or you're on um, social media and people are talking about reserve rights, the first thing they do is they harp back to these very fabulous investors. And that includes Coinbase Ventures as well. And everyone goes, oh, crikey, therefore it must be great. But my, I guess my question back to you is, yes, they probably have put, lucky if they're maybe, I don't know, $500,000, a million dollars, whatever it is. It's tiny, it's minuscule. But do you think, do you think that those four people that you've mentioned give Nevin Freeman, who's the CEO of the Reserve Protocol, do you think they give him time and mentorship? That for me, if if you if you believe that they're going to give him an hour a month or he can pick up the phone and say, look, I've an issue and talk it through, that's worth more than than money. Oh yeah, for sure. And it's uh I think uh, when I had Nevin on my podcast, uh, he had mentioned that uh, one of the things was uh, him and Peter Thiel actually had a relationship before this. And Peter Thiel had been following some of his work through his past companies and had essentially reached out to Nevin and, and basically told him that, hey, if you ever start something in the future, um, please let me know as I would like to be involved, uh, which I think says the world more than the fact that he is an investor. Uh, that says a lot about Nevin and the type of person he is and the potential that he has to lead a project like this. Um, to fruition. And, and because obviously, as we understand, um, and, and a lot of people are still kind of blinded by this. And I've been given the reputation of Barney, hashtag Barney on, on Twitter, yeah. because I can be a little bit of, a, of what people call a bear at times. But I think I like to see myself as being more realistic. I think we also have to understand that at the end of the day, these are all early tech startups in crypto. And the majority of them, just like tech startups on the stock market are going to fail. It is, it yeah. is a reality. And, and a lot of people are very blinded by that. And they buy into all of these low market cap coins and just start pumping the crap out of it on Twitter, talking about how you're basically blind. If you don't see that this is going to be a huge success and 1000 X and in four months or whatever, uh, I think there's got to be some type of realistic expectation that a lot of these projects are going to fail. So I think it definitely doesn't hurt when we've got investors like this, who also back somebody like Nevin and have been successful on their own, giving Nevin advice and, and mentorship. And that was one of the things that I picked up on from Neve at Sweet Center, that she, the RSR queen, that she she will put it out there. This is a tech startup. I think they're based in Palo Alto, the kind of where you would expect in San Francisco. They are growing. They've got initial funding, whether you want to call it Series A, etc. Nevin has said he's got enough money to bring the product to market and more. And they're growing staff, so they probably have an HR function, and he'll have. And, and as a business is growing, he'll walk in one day, and he's maybe had five people, and now he's walking in, and he may have fifty people sitting around him, plus people in uh, 
in Mexico where, where they're looking to take off people in Venezuela. So the whole team is getting really big and that comes with massive problems because I, I remember when I had businesses myself, every time you hire someone, you double your problems. And I just wonder, I just wondered how, who's mentoring him through this whole process? Because for me, he's key. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Um, he has been their actual spokesperson. Um, I know that they used to have a, a head of business development. His name was Charlie Smith. Um, and they tried that out for a bit, uh, but he's actually now left the company, although he still holds uh, a lot of reserve and, and would like to see the project succeed um, as I've had him on, on the podcast. Uh, but Nevin is doing a lot of the groundwork right now. He is basically doing every public appearance that that you can think of. And at some point, like you said, as the as the company grows bigger and bigger, he's going to have to take a more internal um, process. I'm not very aware if they have a, a chief operating officer. I don't think so. I think Nevin is just the guy at, at the control panel, just operating everything right now. And at some point, he's going to be stretched a little too thin. Uh, but he also seems to be doing a really good job. And he's talked about this lots in the past uh, about hiring. And, and he talks about how sometimes the hiring process is a lot longer and frustrating to him because it's taking him a long time to go through uh, a lot of candidates to find the right one, which is actually something um, that, that you would be very happy to hear as an investor and that he's not just saying, hey, um, we've got 15 applicants, let's just pick the best one. No, he's finding somebody that's going to meet his criteria. And if those 15 that he shortlisted don't meet that criteria, he doesn't hire any of them and he just goes right back to the drawing board. So you're, you're, you're knowing right there that even though they are expanding, um, they are getting some very high quality people that they're comfortable with. Jordan, do you want to pick up on that? Uh, yeah, I was just going to say for the listeners, we are talking about tech startups. And as you said, people will think that it's just a small team, but this isn't a small team. Like there is 80 plus people working on this and you don't see the work that's going on behind the scenes. But I think it's important now to move on to what, what Reserve actually is, because we've talked about the team and the leadership about it but what is it actually doing so we've got two tokens if you could talk about them a little Michael, that'd be good uh rsr and then rsv what is what is the use case for these okay so uh, yeah I'd be, I'd be more than happy to do so and uh just know that everything i talk about is really on a high level um i like to understand yeah. projects and theses in the mm -hmm. long term at a very high level and i think it's probably good for your users to understand it at a high level and not into the nitty-gritty as it might get a little too over their heads so yeah. rsv is is the stable coin that we know it so when we think of stable coins we usually think of the most common one which is tether usdt uh, rsv aims to be a stable coin in which the value of the state of the, of the coin uh, doesn't change very often. So uh, when we think about it, we, of, we often think uh, tether doesn't really change often compared to the US dollar. One tether equals one US dollar. So where reserve aims to change their stable coin and that whole process uh, compared to tether. And I think the easiest way to explain this is to compare it to tether because a lot of people understand how it works is that one, they don't wanna be a centralized company running this thing. So uh, as, as we've seen in the news lately uh, and in the past couple of years, there's been a lot of transparency issues with Tether and the potential for them not to be fully collateralized um, to the point where uh, the New York attorney general, uh, they're, they're getting in the whole legal battle with them to try to get them to share more information. So where Reserve aims to kind of split from that is they don't want a central party to control 
the the stablecoin. What they necessarily want is just uh, basically a governance token and and a community to make those decisions um, and and decentralize that whole process. So what they've done is they've created a second token, which is called RSR, which is the governance token. Now, where they want RSV to split off from USDT or where Tether is, is that they've also identified the risk of of inflation. And and as all things do, uh, regardless of you go from the the boulevard in in Venezuela to the US dollar in in the United States, they will go up or they will lose value over the course of time. So, I mean, one dollar, one US dollar today is not worth the same purchasing power as one US dollar was 50 years ago. And it will only get lower and lower as time moves on. So where they want to move away from that is they want the stablecoin eventually to be backed by a basket of assets, which would um, include obviously some of the, the lower inflation currencies, but also as well some stuff like land and other assets that, that you can think of so that there is a huge basket and a collection of assets that isn't so dependent on one country potentially defaulting on their currency or, or have that systemic risk in place. So the stablecoin aims to kind of work itself out over the course of time. Uh, currently, it's it's pegged to the U.S. dollar. Actually, currently it is the U.S. dollar. Um, but over the course of time, it aims to break away from that in order to become a true stable coin. So that's kind of the difference between RSR and RSV and RSR holders. Uh, they plan on basically stabilizing uh, the RSV token through this uh, mechanism that we know as mainnet and arbitrage, so that when the uh, basket of assets that RSV is backed to or backed uh, with, what if they do go up and down as land values and currencies go up and down in real value in real time, um, there will be the opportunity for arbitrage and RSR holders in order to take advantage of that. Okay, so what I want to do is I'm, I'm going to dial back in that. And that was a really good explanation. Really good. So let, let's go to RSV. So you've got RSV, which is a stable coin like Tether. So for the listeners, and Michael and Jordan, stop me anywhere if I get this wrong. I think this is really important. So Tether, my understanding is one Tether equals one US dollar or thereabouts. And the whole idea is that if Tether mint 100 Tether, there should be $100 or something behind that to say that matches that. Am I right? Yes, correct. Okay, so with RSV, the idea would be that it will be pegged to the US dollar. So if there's 100 RSV, there should be 100 US dollars behind it at the moment. Is that correct? Yes, correct to start. Yes. Okay, and then what they'll do is they'll move away and and put a basket of stuff around it. So that's the bit that I get fuzzy on. So if they say, well, we're going to... Are, we to- are they tokenizing land? Are they tokenizing real estate? How does the basket work? And who, where, do- so if I buy, if they create, if they create 100 RSV, who, where does the money going to buy the $100 of stuff in the basket? So uh, essentially people would use the app. So Reserve has an app um, that is currently being used in Venezuela. You would essentially transfer over $100 worth of of your local currency or whatever currency you end up using, um, that goes into this whole mainnet mechanism in which then they would use that money to buy a, a basket of assets that would be tokenized, yes. So real life assets such as land and buildings and properties or whatever would be tokenized as well as uh, they've mentioned a bunch of stuff like 
bonds and treasuries, government bonds and treasuries, uh, as well as um, US dollars and other currencies. So yes, in your original example, uh, $100 worth of USDT or RSV right now is $100 US dollars. Um, but in the future, it might be $25 US dollars, it might be $25 worth of land, it might be $25 worth of uh, government bonds, just a whole basket of different um, assets in order to minimize the risk that there, the systemic risk that let's say the US defaults on their on their debt or whatever, and the dollar inflates to decrease that risk uh, of, of making that stable coin not stable. Okay, so, so let's extrapolate that up. So you've got your one hundred dollars worth of RSV. So I've I've gone onto the app. I've used my Great British Pounds and I've bought one hundred dollars worth of RSV. And the the app or the main net is sitting with my one hundred uh, whatever it is in Great British Pounds, and it's sitting there, and that's backing it. That's part of the the, the backup mechanism. If RSV, if 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 the company and Nevin issue. 100 1 1 million let's say they do 1 million rsv can they just release that from the vault or mint that or without having all the other money behind it or do they they release it and then when people buy it on the app then 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 it'll equalize it out that i'm fuzzy there so these uh you know that's that's a very good question so um uh, as stated in the white paper, uh, and obviously a lot of this part actually isn't necessarily, um, there's no real life comparison to it yet, just because we're not at that stage. And I, I'm sure we'll yeah. talk about it later on in terms of where they're currently at. Um, but in the white paper, it states that these things are all governed by smart contracts. So it's not like there's yeah. a person at the wheel that is going to take your money and then go and buy it. These will all be done as smart contracts on the on the Ethereum blockchain currently, although later on they try to uh, they've said that they're going to make it kind of so that you can kind of take it on and off chain on different chains. Um, but uh, currently they're going to be run by smart contracts in which they'll be programmed so that there has to be a hundred percent collateralization, which means that you can't make more dollars than you have in the bank to hold that, which is, which is a huge key because uh, as you had mentioned earlier, this is one of the biggest issues with USDT and tether right now is that people aren't convinced they've got a hundred percent collateralization in their bank, which then gives you the ability to mint as much money as you want. And then you become basically the same thing as the federal reserve right now. (laughs) Exactly. Okay, so that, that helps me out with RSV. So if I'm living, I'm just going to use Scotland because um, if I'm living in Dundee in Scotland, I've got my I've got my uh, reserve protocol app. I can then say, okay, I'm going to go and buy £100 worth of RSV and I can just buy it, boom. And then the, the smart contract or the whole en- technical engine behind it says, I've got that money, therefore it's, um, we're... I can release the RSV and, 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 it, and it all keeps it stable and, and there's no there's no up and down and nothing happening. Nobody's putting money in anybody's back pocket and there's no there's no nothing sinister. It's pure mathematics and pure finance on the blockchain. Correct. Good. Yes, that is correct. And then let's move that on to uh, the reserve rights token because you talk you call that a governance token, and that's the one that everyone's buying with a view to it rising in value one day. But can you talk more about what that means in terms of a governance token? And I know that it gets burned and there's arbit. We can come on to the arbitrage bit next, but that's the one that everyone's excited about 
Yes. Um, so the governance piece of the RSR token is actually not in play right now. Um, and Nevin has said uh, in the past, and he, and he continues to state that it's just a lot easier to build a startup company and grow it when there is a smaller group of people making these decisions and a smaller group of informed people who are dedicated to the process day in and day out making these decisions currently. So, which obviously makes sense. Uh, I wouldn't actually trust myself making any of these decisions um, as well as a lot of other people who are currently holding RSR because we're just not ingrained in the day-to-day -day life of, of the project. A lot of us don't have the same educational backgrounds and, and, and the knowledge that they have building this thing. So currently it's the central team that is making a lot of these decisions. However, uh, if and when RSR or reserve project as a whole does get to that basket of assets, that's when the governance token kind of comes in in terms of making decisions such as what percentage of the basket is going to hold what percentage of assets? So is it going to be 50% US dollars? Is it going to be 75% land? What is going to make up of that basket? And that's where we're going to see our governance token play into that in terms of deciding, kind of like shareholders um, trying to decide um, for, for publicly traded companies who's going to be on the board of directors. Um, it's kind of the exact same concept, except you'll have more of a direct line to making these decisions. Whereas uh, if you buy in the stock market, you sure you get to say at the AGM, make a vote for who you want to be on the board of directors. But those people are ultimately making decisions that you may or may not agree with. And are we saying that the RSR governance token will more or less come into play when mainnet is released? Yes, correct. Um, that's where the uh, the form of arbitrage will also come into effect. But in terms of the governance piece, uh, because when mainnet is released, it will be pegged to the US dollar. That won't necessarily come too much into play until the future. Yeah, so if you think about the acumen, the nous, and the intellect of Nevin Freeman and, and the team around him, I, 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 it blows my mind in the way that they've, they've put, they, they have put all this together and are putting this together. And as Jordan says, we don't know what's happening behind the scenes, but just trying, just as mere mortals trying to get our head around this uh, in a really um, easy peasy way, um, this is really helping me uh, in a big way. Okay, Jordan, have you got anything you want to pick up in that before I move on? No, let's move on. That was really nicely put and very simple. Yeah, I thought so as well. Okay, so... You've got, they've moved to Venezuela. So they've released the app in Venezuela. And for the last while, they've been testing the reserve app there. And it's been really good to watch it go up the, the sort of finance board. And, and, and it's on Android only, isn't it? It's not iOS yet. Yes, uh, apparently, according to Nevin, the majority of people in third world countries actually have Android phones and just can't, because of the, of the standard of living there, they just can't afford the amount of money that iPhones cost. Uh, and a lot of people uh, in Canada cannot afford what iPhones cost, uh, yeah. but yet they still buy them. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I, totally understandable. Yeah, so they're, they're, they're trialing it in Venezuela and they've got Spanish speaking people on the ground They've got people using the app they've, and over from what we can gather, but Jordan and I's discussions, they've been learning from it. They've put a new team, they've, they've moved away from Zendesk and they've got a new customer service 24 seven thing going on because quite rightly, people do something in the app, something might not work properly or they, they've not perceived it correctly and they go, ah, my money. And they need to speak to someone right away. So he's sort of put that in. He's learning on how people are using the app in terms of they might want to use it like a, a bit 
uh, a wallet or a digital exchange where they can transfer Bitcoin to Bolivar, to Reserve, to whatever. And that, that all went really well. And they released some data recently, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. So this is actually kind of hidden data. Um, and, and the team has been, uh, this has been a bit of a criticism coming from North America and, and Europe, basically anywhere that the reserve app isn't currently being used or, or their yeah. focus um, is a bit of criticism in terms of them not really being, uh, I wouldn't say transparent, um, but just not really focusing on marketing to these markets. Um, and, and their primary focus has always been uh, mass adoption in the areas and the markets that they're focused on, which is a, a lot of Latin American, uh, South American uh, countries right now, such as Venezuela. Um, and, and another piece of it has been the fact that they are trying to get the biggest first movers advantage that they can get in these countries before opening up all of their data and access to all of their information for other companies to then try to catch up um, and enter that space as well. But yes, uh, Nevin has, I guess he openly talks about this stuff, but he doesn't promote it on his Twitter or, or openly advertise it. So um, somebody on, uh, I think it was on a small Reddit reserve forum actually found uh, this video in which he had talked about transactions. Um, and, and the amount of uh, money that was going through these transactions on a daily basis. And it uh, ended up being, I believe it was 9,000 transactions a day for roughly 1 million US dollars uh, being moved on a daily basis, uh, with most of it coming from companies. Uh, yeah. So companies and businesses using it in Venezuela, um, as well as a lot of, uh, a lot of individual users. Um, and obviously these numbers are kind of capped. They are pretty impressive in and of itself but they're, they're capped because they had to uh, stop the inflow of new users um, after March. So they opened it up in March, got to number one on the app store uh, for financial apps. Um, and then as you had mentioned, they, uh, they had a bit of an issue trying to scale up their customer service and they didn't want people to not be comfortable with the app when downloading it to the point where they lose confidence in it. Because obviously, especially stuff financial wise, if you download something and you lose confidence in the ability to use it, a lot of people get very protective about their money and instantly move on to something else. This isn't necessarily a video game in which my guy is glitching when I'm shooting a gun. This is my own hard-earned dollars. So people are a lot less willing to um, to, to, to wait for patches and updates to fix certain glitches and issues. Um, yeah. So it was very wise of them, in my opinion, to, to kind of stop the amount of inflow of new users and to make sure that they've got the customer service support staff and also, um, as you had mentioned, the right uh, software in place in order to help um, service the amount of new users that are going to come with the, with the app. And uh, a lot of people are very frustrated with that, uh, but it's a different mindset. You have, to, you have to remember that everybody wants to get rich soon. All right. Everybody who's bought RSR is always talking about, oh, it's going to be $1 before the end of the year. That's not how it works. And it's not how we want the company to, to think with that mindset. We want the company and Nevin and his whole team, their number one priority should be to make sure that this app works and that the future of this company is very bright and that the main goal of this project is mass adoption everywhere in the world. And that is his focus. He doesn't care if he is delaying the app opening by a couple months. Uh, a couple months in the grand scheme of things is absolutely nothing, especially for an early tech startup. His primary focus is to make sure they have a great product so that they are able to get proof of concept in one market, which they've chosen as Venezuela. So then they can kind of take that sort of like Uber and Lyft model and, and kind of replicate that across the world into a lot of other places that desperately need it. 
Next up, we chat about the marketing of reserve, and Michael explains exactly what mainnet could mean for reserve and the RSR token. But first, a little word about Zumo. Imagine being able to use one wallet to buy, store, and even exchange your crypto into pounds, which can then be spent online. That's exactly what Zumo have built. And what makes it better? It's very simple to navigate. To open your own wallet, just head over to the link in our show notes below. Right, back to the episode. And I, I was going to ask, why do you think Nevin is relaying this information in this way and so secretive as well? Would it Going forward, would you like him or the whole company to be more open with the data and forthcoming? Because if I compare him or if I compare it to Cardano, where they're doing weekly lives, where they're just answering the community's question questions, and then I compare it to RSR, I would love to see more from the RSR team. And I, I realize that they're working behind the scenes and you don't want to take them away from that. But it'd be nice for the RSR community to hear a little bit more and it could bring more people to the RSR community as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, this has actually been a huge point in the RSR, in the reserve community in terms of a lack of information as well as an English speaking Twitter account that didn't necessarily tweet too much or tweeted the wrong content. Whereas uh, they've got their Spanish speaking reserve uh, Twitter account that that pumps out information on almost on a daily basis. Um, but the way I see it is I don't necessarily see Nevin as being secretive about this. I see it in that he doesn't really, um, he's got a limited, uh, he's got a lack of resources available to him, time and, and his and his effort and, and brain power. Um, and so he's focusing it in, in, the, in the areas that he feels like will lead to the highest rate of success for this company. And I think right now he doesn't really have much of a focus on uh, I hate to say it, but first world countries are on North America or Europe because there's no real benefit to the, uh, I guess, to the project for this. Um, he's stated multiple times in the past, they've got enough cash runway to see this project through, to see it to a point where they understand whether this project is going to succeed or fail. And the majority of times you see a lot of, and I don't really know Cardano, um, for example, but a lot of publicly traded companies, and I actually used to work for a biotech company, they go on trade shows right about the time they're trying to raise money from investment bankers and whatnot. And that's when they kind of start releasing a lot of their data and going to talk to a lot of people because they need to raise money. Well, Nevin has stated, as, as I just recently said, that they don't need to raise any more money. They've got all the money that they need. What they need to focus on is these markets that they're trying to get mass adoption. If they don't get mass adoption in these markets, the project fails. It doesn't matter yeah. if me, you, and, and Jim uh, all of a sudden understand, hey, this project is absolutely great. It's fantastic. We tell all our friends about it. It doesn't matter if we have no friends in Venezuela who are going to download this app. So they are focusing all their time and resources into that. And as a result, he's not spending his time doing this press tour in which he's telling all of us um, and, and people who can't really impact the, the success of the project um, about, about their recent updates. Yeah, and I, I, and I think that's fair enough because probably in his head and the team's head around him, they've kind of been in stealth mode, even though it's not stealth mode because the app's out there and they want to guarantee to themselves and to the users that, that it works. 
So they've put the data out, $365 million a year, roughly. You, you could extrapolate that out going through it. And this week, I think, in the last 10 days, they've now put new invitations to users to give to other people in Venezuela. Is that right? Correct. So uh, they're just starting to roll out two uh, invitations per existing user that they can then send out to friends and family um, to sign up for the app. Yeah. So if that works, that will triple the amount of users. Yeah, um, just like that. And, uh, and just they've said that. that after the first round of two invites each, uh, they'll assess where it is and then they'll slowly open it up. Um, and obviously uh, their big thing is customer support, right? They need to have the adequate customer support um, to be able to service new users. Cause you can't just go from 30,000 users to 5 million users and expect any type of success rate if you don't have the support system in place. It's just not how it works. And a lot of people don't really understand that. Um, they've got the demand. That's the thing. They've got people asking. If you just look at their um, their Twitter account, their Spanish-speaking Twitter account, and go through the comments of people posting on these tweets, I know it's in Spanish, but you can hit the translate tweet part. There are people begging to get into this app. Like yeah. the, the demand is there. They just got to make sure the infrastructure is there. Exactly. So... If, if they're successful and they get to the stage where they, they can triple it, here's my question. At what stage, once they've proved that them as a team and the technology and the blockchain on Ethereum with all the smart contracts, contracts and everything else that goes behind it works and say, Crikey, we can now start to scale this a little bit. At what point does Nevin and the team have to release the mainnet? or move to mainnet? So uh, I think Nevin has stated in the past that he won't open mainnet until there is mass adoption. And he's and he hasn't really thrown out much of a figure, although I believe uh, from my memory, he did state somewhere around 10 million users um, would wow. be considered mass adoption to him, which is a significant, gigantic number. Um, I wonder if that changes um, as, as obviously the, the project moves along. He has, uh, and the team has always said for the past, I guess, like maybe six to nine months, that mainnet will happen in quarter four of this year, um, quarter four being October to December. Um, and uh, just as recently as, I guess, a past couple of weeks ago, um, he has stated that they are on track for this to happen. So that right in and of itself, because I think they're currently right now at like less than 100,000 users. I think they're at like 60 or 70,000 users or something like that. That tells you his confidence in the demand waiting for them to open up this app. And he has no doubt that they're going to get there by, I guess, in in like three, three to three to six months. Um, so at that point, um, you're going to get enough users, enough transactions. He'll open up mainnet, and then that will be a whole can of worms in and of itself that uh, that that it'll trigger. And within the geopolitical context of what's going on right now with Bitcoin, and Everyone who listens to this podcast or follows cryptocurrency and blockchain will know that within the last 10 days, the president of El Salvador has and the government have signed in Bitcoin as legal tender uh, to be used there. And that's allegedly, purportedly going to accelerate the use of Bitcoin and its use case and all that sort of stuff. And But I wonder if that's a perfect storm for reserve and the reserve team to, to really go for it in Venezuela because do you know what the countries in that area are showing you they need something different from the US dollar yeah yeah for sure um, I actually just recently had 
um, a guy from Venezuela. Um, his name is Francisco on, on my podcast. Um, you can actually, yeah, yeah fa- his, uh, his Twitter is vortex ICS 82. Um, but essentially what, what he did was he started mining Ethereum back in 2017 and uh, he's made uh, himself enough of a fortune in order to kind of go out there and do a lot of charity work. And right now he's just buying food bags um, and handing them out in Venezuela um, because of just the dire uh, conditions that they've had financially and economically that have happened to a lot of people. And obviously COVID hasn't helped. Um, but he explained that that a lot of businesses have been open to accepting Bitcoin in the past, but that the Bitcoin infrastructure was just a little too complex for people to really understand. And and that the uh, the token itself is a little too volatile for people to really use on a day to day basis, um, because really, who wants to spend? I mean, there's the infamous ten thousand bitcoins for two pizzas story. Um, who really wants to spend money that might double or triple um, two to three months from now, right? Uh, and who wants to accept money that might drop by fifty percent in a week from now? Um, so it's not it's not really reasonable or practical. Um, obviously, the El Salvador. Um, president stating that um, it's going to be legal tender is a great step forward. Um, but I just don't think that Bitcoin, uh, obviously, in the very beginning of Bitcoin, it was seen as potentially a transactional currency. But I think it's kind of settled into this, uh, for lack of a, an easier way to say it, uh, a, a digital gold, per se, just a, more of a storage of value. Um, I still see Bitcoin as being the king of crypto. Um, I, I don't I don't shy away from that. But I think that there are more opportunities for day-to-day transactional currencies, and they need to be a stable coin. So, so I do agree with your premise that um, as a lot of these countries are starting to come out and 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 follow uh, El Salvador and kind of hint at at perhaps looking at Bitcoin as as uh, as legal tender, um, that may help. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say that Nevin's going to speed up his timeline because he has proven in the past that he doesn't really care what happens and what anybody says. He's going to focus yeah. on the timeline that works best um, and that he he won't release things until he feels comfortable with it. But I do think it will help in the education process of people in Venezuela and understanding cryptocurrencies and the part that they can play in that whole ecosystem. And when that happens, Reserve will have the infrastructure in place in order for these people to jump right on board. Yeah. And I, as you say that, even if you went to 1 million users as opposed to 10 million, that, that would be a phenomenal. Uh, and and the, if that was successful, you could 10x that really quickly. So let me come back to Q4 and what you mentioned about mainnet coming up. And can you talk around for the, for the newbies to this podcast, what a mainnet would look like or what the mainnet feels like to you, Michael? And at that stage... How does that affect RSR really coming into play? So mainnet and uh, not being technical, because again, I don't really understand the technical aspect yep. of it too much. Uh, I'm not a computer programmer, but mainnet to me feels like smart contracts being in place and transparency of data. So when we think about blockchain, we think about the ability to see transactions on Etherscan or whatever you end up choosing to do um, to see how long those transactions are taking, how many verifications there are, and uh and whose wallet owns what and all that fun stuff. So right now, obviously we can currently see wallets and how much RSR they own, but we don't have the ability to see the number of transactions and get all that data in real time. We're relying on Nevin to tell us there are 9,000 transactions a day for about a million dollars US dollars on a daily basis. So that is what mainnet kind of means to me is that there's more of a decentralized piece with more transparency of data. Uh, In terms of how RSR then comes into that is when we talk about mainnet and 
um, and smart contracts coming into play, um, there will be the use of mainnet to try to stabilize the RSV value. And uh, as we stated in the past, RSV is going to be pegged to the US dollar. However, that dollar does fluctuate up and down depending on demand on, uh, on, on marketplaces, right? You may just have a, a marketplace in which there are, there just so happen to be a lot more buyers, purchasers of, of RSV, more demand than there are than there is current supply on that marketplace. And thus far, the price goes up and down. And the same concept, and you think about every other token on, on an exchange, right? The price goes up when more people want to buy, the price goes down when less people want to buy. And so where there's an opportunity for that and where mainnet comes in is as an RSR holder, you're able to take advantage of this arbitrage um, through a mechanism in which you trade in your RSR token for, uh, let's say, let's sorry, let's say RSV is trading for a dollar and five cents on Binance. So um, let's say Binance, uh, obviously, I'm not sure if it's going to be listed on there, uh, but let's just use Binance as an example, because it is a, an exchange that a lot of people understand. So um, let's say it's trading for a dollar and five cents on Binance. I have the opportunity as an RSR holder to trade in RSR for $1 worth of RSV. And then I can take that RSV and sell it on Binance and make that difference of, of five cents. So uh, that is where my opportunity and where people say arbitrage, the ability to arbitrage, um, the, the mechanism itself, the mainnet mechanism, I don't actually think the word should be called arbitrage because arbitrage is just a term used for a whole bunch of different things. Like if I go to a garage sale and buy something and sell it on eBay, that's arbitrage. So it's yeah. just basically what you're doing to try to buy something for a lower value and selling it at a higher value and pocketing the difference. Um, but that is what mainnet will allow the opportunity for RSR users to do. Okay. So they can make 5% and less fees on the likes of Binance. So they can make a little bit of margin, a little bit of profit. Okay. Coming back to RSR, there's a thing I read where, where certain amounts of RSR will get burned. So that's a deflationary token. Do you Can you talk about that? Yes. So, so basically what happens when you arbitrage your RSR, and I should have mentioned this too, is that the, the RSR that gets arbitraged in that process uh, actually gets burned by the mainnet mechanism. So then your total supply of RSR decreases. To the best of my ability, the potential for RSR to increase comes, uh, and this is probably going to be a little more complicated, but when your basket of tokens, uh, sorry, your basket of collateral decreases in value. So let's say right now we're pegged $1 to what, or $100 worth, let's say $100 worth of RSV is now $100 worth of land when we have that basket of assets, just for simplicity's sake. Now, if that land decreases in value to $98, all of a sudden we've got a bit of an issue because if all the people holding the $100 of RSV want to cash out for that theoretical token or that, that basket of assets, there isn't enough value in there to pay out $100 worth. So what the mechanism will do, mainnet mechanism will do, was that it will mint more RSR so it doesn't affect the RSV supply. It'll mint more RSR in order to generate the funds to get the collateralization back to $100 so that if there is a run on RSV to cash out, they've got the amount of, of value there. So that is when um, uh, the most likelihood of RSR increasing in terms of supply, which is why people always talk about RSR being a deflationary token and the chances, and you've seen price predictions all the way up to 56, 68, um, which I think is a bit of a stretch, um, but obviously uh, anything is possible. I just won't necessarily bank on that or start tweeting about the fact that I think it's gonna get to that price. 
Um, but that is where a lot of people see the opportunity for a deflationary token to increase in value. Okay, so currently then, if I'm buying RSR on crypto.com or Binance just now, I'm buying a token and that token, the price of the token is really just people wanting to buy it. It's not actually doing anything right now, is it? No, it's not. It's not. It's not doing anything. No, it's not. There's actually no use case uh, for a lot of these tokens people are buying on, on Binance. Uh, it's you're, you're, you're essentially buying the RSR token. It's not really doing much right now, uh, but is is people are just accumulating for the future fact that when mainnet does open up, there will be uh, a use case for this token in the future. And this, this is where I am just now in my investment thesis. So I love what Nevin's doing. And I love the fact that he's not being deflected by external impacts. And I love the fact that I can go into Ola Reserve and I can see people actually doing it, using it, and it's affecting. And they're saying this is really good because I'm not losing money every day. But my investment thesis is where I was 12 months ago when I bought Cardano. So I bought Cardano at three, four cents initially, all the way up to 17 cents. And it, as a token, it did nothing. It just lay there. There was not. There was nothing. And then round about July 2020, we had the Shelley, Shelley mainnet. And from there, we could uh, stake it on our Daedalus wallets. And then we had a Mary Hard Fork. And then now we've got, I think Charles Hoskins and the CEO has come out and said, it's going to be September, guys. And it's pushed back a little bit. But in the next 90 days are going to be crucial to the success of all the technology coming out. September, we're going to have smart contracts and you can really start to do stuff with your Cardano. So that's coming, but it's taken a long time. And that's where I am just now with the RSR token and that people ask me, Jim, what are you investing in or where are you in crypto? And I say, I like this because, and it's not really doing anything, but I'm like, do you know what? One day this, this is potentially going to do something really useful. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and and that's part of getting in early, right? We see, uh, and obviously I go back to my biotech example because that's kind of where I'm comfortable with, but people invest in stocks, biotech stocks um, that are that have kind of patents on, on cancer treatment drugs or whatnot that are going through the approval process, right? That are going through the clinical trials and testing. And there isn't necessarily a, a guarantee of success there, but people are banking on the fact that this has high potential and that if it does get to the point where it does get commercialized, that they're able to see some type of return on that. And that's where we're currently at right now. Um, I do want to uh, mention that I forgot to make a note there uh, with regards to the deflationary aspect that when I mentioned in terms of issuing more or minting more RSR in order to get 100% collateralization of that basket of assets, if it does decrease. Uh, I actually ran my thesis to, uh, ran it by Nevin on, on my own podcast. And he kind of just uh, laughed and, and sort of chuckled because uh, he didn't really want to say it was correct or not. But essentially, when you really think about it, the majority of harder assets um, or physical assets in the world are going up in price and they will continue to go up in price as federal reserves or federal uh, monetary policies uh, around the world um, start to mint more money. So when we think about something like, and you had mentioned earlier, uh, the Vancouver housing market, um, there are a number of other factors in play, uh, but for the most part, land generally goes up in value over time as more money gets minted, just because there is a scarcity of land that you can build on in the world 
And there's a scarcity of desirable places with desirable weather and infrastructure in place that people want to live in, that eventually those assets do go up in value. So the likelihood, obviously, there are things like the 2008 stock market crash in the United States, but they're very short lived. And now you see in the United States, there's a huge uh, run up on uh, on housing on the housing market, and and they're at hotter hotter prices than they were back in 2008. So in the course of time, in the long term, these assets will inflate in in value which kind of decreases the likelihood that there will be more RSR minted to fill up this 100% collateralization because the chances of it going under 100% aren't very significant in the long term. It might do it short uh, in the short term, but in the long term, the general thesis is that it will only go up in value. Um, and I ran this kind of thesis by, uh, by Nevin and the fact that, hey, the arbitrage mechanism burns RSR the likelihood of you minting more RSR isn't necessarily that high. Does this mean that there is a chance that the RSR price will only go up over time? And he kind of had a laugh at that and didn't confirm or deny that as he didn't want to put out any price speculations. Yeah. Um, but, but the general thesis itself makes sense to me. And, and I think it makes sense given what they've written in the white paper. Yeah, got you yeah. on that. Understand that. So before I hand over to Jordan for the next question, I've got one more on the art, the reserve rates token vault. So my understanding is that every now and then the team or the smart contract will have to release more RSV from the vault um, or whatever they've got, because it's a hundred billion supply, but that's not, yes. I think it's 13 billion circu circulating supply yep. just now. And when they do that, they'll give fair, no fair warning and fair notice, but that can actually affect pricing as well, can't it? Oh yes, it definitely can. Uh, obviously, uh, a lot of what they do in terms of uh, releasing RSV. And, and I also want to know RSR as well, as the majority of people will be more focused on RSR. Um, one of the biggest things of mainnet is that mainnet actually unlocks early investor tokens, uh, early investor and the team's tokens. Um, so exactly. when you think about it, there's a huge supply of them. And if they all dump them on the market at the same time, we've got an issue for those of you guys following, like what Sheep currently has, right? The Shiba Inu yeah. coin, uh, when Vitalik uh, infamously took out all of the, uh, <laughs> everything that was in, 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 in the Uniswap pools, uh, liquidity pools, and then donated that, there becomes a bit of an issue in terms of trying to off, offload all of that into the market and not doing it in a, uh, in a way that affects the price too much. So um, all of these early investor and, uh, and team tokens will actually be slow released uh, to them over the course of six months. So there is a bit of a, a heads up on that. And you are able to follow these, uh, these wallets um, in which they get to a point where you're hoping, and this is where a lot of people have kind of come in with their own hypothesis, because obviously at the end of the day, you're not too sure what's going to happen to the price until it actually happens. If you did, uh, if you did know in the short term, what would happen, you'd be a billionaire. <laughs> and please let me know, you can DM me what's going to happen for all of these different <laughs> prices. Um, uh, but what, where a lot of people come into this thesis is then they have the idea that this is when Coinbase will, will list it. This is when PayPal will list it and all of these connections that people think are going to come to fruition someday, Grayscale will all come in and scoop up that excess of supply on the market as it's slowly released over six months. So that's where yeah. there is that thesis. But at the end of the day, my thinking is that uh, nobody really knows until it actually happens. Yeah, and I, and that that's really good um, counsel because I, I understand when when mainnet comes out, people are going to go, "Gosh, this is going to go to you've seen it, you've seen it a million times. This is going to go to fifty cents or a dollar." But actually, there's a lot more going on then, 
and just just easy does it. And just one final one, sorry, Jordan. My my investment time frame for this is ten years. I don't know where you are, Michael. I'm at uh, about three to five years. Yeah, and I think okay. I think that is a very reasonable time frame for something that people expect to go to $1. It's currently, uh, $1 seems to be the the kind of target that a lot of people have. It's currently trading at about three cents. I think it's not an unreasonable time frame to expect something to 33X over the course of five or even 10 years. Yeah, yeah. that sounds good. And, sorry, Jordan. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I know our listeners, because in our other episodes, we've been talking obviously about these bull and bear markets and teaching them what these are. And... We've, we've told them that these sort of investments in cryptocurrency are long-term, but do you think with the opening of mainnet in Q4 and the potential of a bear market coming, do you think that will have any impact on the project as a whole, or do you think it will just be the price of RSR that will just go down, but the project will just stay the same and keep going? I think it'll actually just be the the price of RSR. And again, uh, nobody really knows if it'll actually affect the price until we actually get to that point. Um, Because for the most part, for a lot of cryptocurrency projects, I'd say probably 99.99% of them, there hasn't really been a sufficient real life use case mass adoption aspect to them in a bear market to see what would actually happen to the price. Now, if reservists get able to get to a point where they got a million users or even 5 million users, um, that completely changes the thesis of what a bear market would do to a certain cryptocurrency that relies on a smart contract decentralized platform in order to stabilize that currency's that that use cases uh, stablecoin. So uh, so we don't know. Um, I, I think for the most part, people get frustrated that it's not in line with a bull market. Uh, or, or potentially not in line with the bull market. Again, nobody really knows. Um, and I think those people are very short-sighted. Uh, as, as we just mentioned, Jim, Jim had just mentioned that his, his investing timeline for this thing is 10 years and mine is three to five years. I think the only people who are very frustrated at the fact that it's not lining up with the bull market are people looking to sell before the end of 2020. So sometime in the yeah. next six months. Mm-hmm. Um, and in which at that point, I just don't think you have the patience involved for a project like this. And that you don't have, like, this isn't really... Um, Obviously, all investing is a gamble, but this to me is an educated gamble. Whereas you go on Uniswap and you buy these coins that 10x in a day, that is actually gambling. You might as well just go to the casino and just put your money down and chips down on something, on a number, on the roulette table. This is more educated um, risk-taking, and it's going to require a certain amount of time for this thesis to play out and to see whether or not it's going to work. So while I don't know what the price is going to be, and while I understand that a lot of people are frustrated that mainnet might not be in line with the peak of the bull market, I don't think Nevin really cares. And I don't think it has any effect on the success of this um, of this project. As, as, I, as I can probably imagine, the majority of people in Venezuela couldn't care less if it was a crypto bull market or not right now, right? They, exactly. They, uh, a lot of people don't have access to, to the crypto markets. They're just trying to survive and figure out where their next meal is coming from and how to stop the hyperinflation of their of their currency from affecting the ability for them to put food on the table. Right? They don't care exactly. about a bear market. The, the whole reason they're using RSV and using the, the app is to make sure that when they wake up the next day, the dollar of value they had is still a dollar. Yes, for sure. And uh, as as I had Francisco on the on the pod, on my own podcast recently, he mentioned that. Grocery stores, they're actually changed their prices about two to three times a day 
which is very scary when you think about it. You go into a grocery store trying to get some eggs and it might be $2 uh, for a carton of eggs one day and it might be $3 the next, right? And it's it's a very scary way to live your life. Wow. Okay. Whew, that's quite a lot to take in. Let me let me move on to the the community. So I think I, I'm not sure if it was the RSR whale or fuzzy snoot used to put a thing out every other day on Twitter to say the number of bag holders or people who are buying RSR and wallets is 12,000, 12, 14,000. And I remember a year ago, it was something like 10,000. And I don't know anyone, if anyone's following or doing it now, but that must be really high. Yeah, I'm actually not too sure what the number of bag holders is anymore. I think it was a guy on Twitter. His name is Arbonaut. Um, like, uh, like astronaut, but as a, as an arbitrage or arbitrage, um, yeah. he would, uh, release the amount of bank holders, um, on a, on a tweet on like a daily basis. And yeah, That's I remember right. that. I remember those days too. It would grow. And like some days it would grow by like 30 and you'd be like, Oh, yeah. 30 people went into this thing. This is awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah. and then now I'm, I'm sure I haven't followed along, but I'm sure that that number has grown exponentially and, and at a very fast rate. I'm definitely going to come off this recording and go into Etherscan and find out. Yeah, that would be an interesting number to know. And please tweet it. I'd be happy to retweet it because I'm also very curious as to as to what that number is. So we've come we've come a long way in in the in the last uh, while. This project is so early. The tech is still being crafted, and we're hoping that we hope. And we trust that behind the scenes, Nevin and all the team have got it in, in, a, in a really good, solid place. The actual community itself is growing, and it, but it's a, it seems to be quite a positive community. When I look at the Bitcoin community, they're always swearing at each other or they're in little camps. And then you've got the Bitcoin BSV guys and it's all a bit, it can be a bit messy. But just now that the community on Twitter anyway seems pretty positive and supportive, Michael. Yes, uh, it, it actually has been very much so far. Uh, I also think a lot of that is because the community is quite small right now because Reserve is a, a very early project. Um, and there hasn't been too much in terms of track record of trying to execute in real life yet. And I think when that happens, you're going to start to see division in the community in terms of people agreeing or disagreeing with certain moves that the team is use, is, is doing. Um, and, and I think as the community grows, just like any community, just like in real life, you're bound to get more division as you have more and more people in there. And it becomes more difficult. Just like how you mentioned earlier, um, scaling a business, as you have more employees, there's just going to be more problems. It's just, it's yeah. just happens. Not everybody thinks the same way. People are very um, passionate, especially when there's money on the line and their own money invested. People are passionate about the direction that that certain companies take or certain investments take. Um, and, and it will just be the case. But for the time being right now, I'd say on Twitter um, and, on, and on my Discord, it's been absolutely fantastic. It's been really cool to, to get to know people. I think this is, the, this is the coolest part, being so early in the community and not just finding people who are also invested in RSR, but getting to know a bit about them, getting to know um, who they are, what, what they enjoy, right? Um, sports teams that they cheer for or things that they do on the side, what their nine to five job is um, and getting to know them 
And then hopefully, as you had mentioned, hopefully in the future, when RSR does get to a point where there is enough for them to create an annual conference, just like we saw the Bitcoin conference have in Miami, that when we do get together, I'm able to go, holy smokes, Jordan, Jim, it's absolutely fantastic to get a chance to have a beer with you guys in person and, and, to, and yeah. to talk more. And it was, uh, that's, that's the part that I really enjoy so far. And I think that's the part that if a lot of people are frustrated and don't have the patience to sit through this price action right now, and as Reserve tries to scale and grow their operations, dive yourself into the community, get to know people, start to educate yourself about the project and share and get to know the whole community better. And, and time, you'll find time will go by a lot better and it'll actually be fun for you to be invested in this project on a day-to-day -day basis. And before you know it, mainnet's here. And before you know it, they're in other countries and, and, and we get to meet in person someday. Yeah. And I loved your, I think I told you privately, I loved your uh, podcast with Crypto Rick. He's a NASA scientist. Yeah, yeah, right. Like, who would have thought? I, I meet some guy named Crypto Rick on, on Twitter. He's got uh, a Rick from Rick and Morty as his, as his screen, uh, screen profile, just like how I have Ernie from Sesame Street. And little do you know, he's a, he's a NASA scientist. And now he's starting his own uh, startup. Um, that I believe is, is is attempting to collect space debris. So yeah. they're looking to clean up like debris from space. And it's like, holy smokes, man, you're not just <laughs> this guy with a with a cartoon character on Twitter, just with a with a couple hundred followers or a couple thousand followers. You're an actual real person doing cool stuff. And that's what I liked when I when I started to listen to your podcast in terms of, of your own story, Michael, you know, financially literate, not not a moon boy, not coming on there saying, I'm just going to, I'm just going to show this coin. I'm going to get everybody just to follow it. You, you know, you've, you're thinking it through all the time. You're probably reassessing your own rationale for your the investment thesis. Um, and we all know it's early. So again, there seems to be some really good, strong gray matter and cog cognitive capacity around reserve. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you've got a lot of people who, uh, who are very critical of the project and think think things through. And then obviously you're going to have some people on there that just say $1 by December 31st. I have no rationale for it. And then just names, Coinbase, PayPal, Grayscale, yeah. and that's it. That's all I need to tell you. You're stupid if you don't agree. Um, there's got to be some more rationale to that. Obviously, everybody would like to get to a dollar. I mean, I wouldn't be upset if that person was correct. <laughs> it's yeah. not something that would upset me, but we just have to be realistic with it because it's not very helpful for newbies that come into the space with that expectation, right? And this was yeah. kind of what I talked about earlier in terms of the, the Bitcoin, uh, where it was at in 2017, 2018 was people just buying without any understanding of what the project actually was with the expectation that they could just sell it for double the amount a week later. It's not very healthy for any project and it's not the people that we want in this project. Jordan, are you going to go out and buy more RSR this week? <laughs> I definitely am. <laughs> well, probably after this podcast. <laughs> and it's a great opportunity just now. I think when, when I looked back, I think it was January, February, it went to 10 or 12 cents. I was thinking, gosh, I'll never be able to buy that again at what I bought it at. And now it's come back down um, just because the way things are moving in the market. And for us, it's a great opportunity. And for all the listeners, listen to Michael, go and download the white paper, do all your research, find out about it, uh, get onto Twitter, go get onto Discord, re, just become become an anorak and really understand whatever project you like. Um, and RSR is one of ours, and that's what we're doing. Even today, I've learned something today. 
and that's that's really important as you especially if, if you're putting your your pounds your euros or your dollars on the table michael wow <sighs> crikey an hour and a half's flown in yeah yeah that was uh that was very fun uh, i want to thank you guys for having me on the podcast if i could plug some things that would be absolutely fantastic yeah. um please follow me on twitter at rsr ernie um, on there, you'll also find an invite link to our Discord for RSR Rangers. Uh, I think we're sitting at about 1,600 people right now. It's a very tight-knit community in which we talk about a whole bunch of different things outside of Reserve as we wait for the Reserve project to continue to grow. Um, and then I also want to, uh, I guess, I'm not even too sure when this will come out, but I'm making the announcement on Monday, which is tomorrow, um, that uh, RSR uh, or sorry, uh, I'm going to have the RSR, the reserve uh, merch store open and the, uh, the link to it will be erniesreservestore.com. Um, and from there, there will be uh, a bit of a, you can sign up for uh, register for coupons and whatnot, but the official opening date will be July 1st, 2021. So erniesreservestore.com, you can get all of your merch. There'll be how to's for beginners on what is reserve and how to buy. Uh, as well as my podcast, blogs, and uh, and a who's who of, of Reserve Crypto Twitter and who to follow, in which I'll definitely really have you guys good. on there. Is there is there anything else that we've not covered, Michael? That you think I wish they wish they had just brought that up, or have we? Or do you feel we've given the newbies in the UK uh, a decent understanding of the Reserve Protocol? No, I, th- I think that's a that's a pretty decent understanding of the Reserve Protocol. Um, I do want to note that a lot of people think about it in terms of an RSR and what is in it for them. But I think when you really think about that, um, what you need to look to assess this project is to look at the project and, and the use case of it in Venezuela right now. And if we have mass adoption in Venezuela, the price will take care of itself. And that's really all we yeah. need to look at. Don't worry about the short-term price. Don't worry about when Coinbase is buying. Don't worry about when PayPal is listing or when Grayscale is listing. None of these things are really relevant in the long-term, right? They may be a short-term boost, but you're only interested in that if you're going to sell in the short-term. And I think for, for, all, for all of us talking on this uh, and some of you good listeners out there, you're more invested in the long-term and you see a bigger potential for this project, right? And yeah. sure... Coinbase may list tomorrow and let's say it goes to 10 cents. Are you going to sell at 10 cents? If not, does it really matter that they're going to list? Um, so that's a question you got to ask yourself and just think about the big thesis of, of the project. Yeah. And it's interesting, Jordan and I had written down the very, the very start of this number one was investment thesis. And the other thing we said we were not going to do and we haven't done is we haven't asked you, what do you think the price will go to? What do you think the price will be? Because um, the use case for us is, is just so important. And when you see, when, when I listen to your last podcast, oh my goodness. Um, I mean, I'm sitting here with everything I want, Apple Macs, Apple phones, all the rest of it, you know, Yeti mics, and they are struggling to put a roof over their head. So um, actually that keeps us humble. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, it definitely puts things into perspective and makes you more thankful for what you have in your everyday life. Michael, thank you so much. Keep doing what you do. Um, We will definitely follow your podcast, continue to make sure we promote it um, and just keep keep educating us and keep it real. Thank you very much. Take care, Michael. What an episode that was. Even Jim and I learned so much from Michael. Now, I've put all his details in the show notes below and would really recommend listening to his podcast and giving him a follow on Twitter. We hope you enjoyed and we'll see you on the next one.